love the music. I was wondering how many old Southern Baptists were turning over in their grave when they heard the rolls called up yonder played with an electric guitar. Maybe <laughs> shocking to a few. I love it. Please find your way to God's word, Romans 9. We will continue to learn about God and praise him along the way. We will see that God has kept his promises and how through choosing Israel, his plan from the beginning is being carried out. And again, I say, seeing God work throughout history should give us full assurance that he will do what he said he would do in the future. Amen. Because of what God has done, because of what Christ has done, we have a living hope in our hearts, as Chris thoroughly explained today. We're able to look past the troubles of this world. We're, we're able to rejoice in all situations because we know that our Redeemer lives. Amen. So let's dig in. Romans 9. Here we are. Paul's dealing with the questions that, that has come up about uh, what about Israel, they're saying. The church is being established. Paul is dealing with the questions, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, that everybody is having, that they're bringing to the table, you know. And, and we look at what Paul's doing here in Romans. He spent three chapters explaining salvation and how Christ the Messiah is the Messiah, and that salvation has come through Jesus Christ. And so they have many questions, questions about God's plan, questions about God's chosen people. Why are there more Gentiles coming to saving faith than Jews? And the big question is, if Israel is God's chosen nation, then why doesn't the, quote, nation see Jesus as the Savior that was promised? I mean, if anyone should have known that the Messiah had come, it would have been or should have been the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. This is a question that not only the Jewish people should have been asking, but the Gentiles too. I mean, that's a legitimate question. What's going on here? Why are the teachers of the Jewish people denying Christ, they would ask? If Christ is the Messiah, then does that mean that God has turned his back on the Jewish people? Good questions. So Paul begins to explain what God is doing by looking back at what God has done. Paul answers the questions that they all have about God by going back, looking at the scriptures, he points to the sovereignty of God and the choices that God has made. He takes them back to see what God has done through the nation of Israel. Why? Because the story of Israel is the central story of the true God and of the world. Now, it's very important to keep that in mind as you go through chapters 9 through 11 here in Romans. If we drift away from the reason Paul is speaking about Israel, we will miss what has been done and what God is going to do. So a quick review. Paul is heartbroken over the unbelief of his kinsmen in the flesh, that is the Jewish nation. He wants them to, to see the light. He desires for them to put their trust in Christ. And so he begins the story of Israel by pointing out all the blessings that God has given them. He says, look, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, the patriarchs, he says, all with the purpose of bringing them to the ultimate blessing, which is from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The choosing of Israel, the blessings that God gave Israel, 
were given in order that Christ would come through that bloodline. As a nation, as a nation, they were destined to bless the world. It was through the nation of Israel that the Messiah has come. And so as Paul tells the story of Israel, he answers many questions that man has. First one is, has God's word failed? Since the nation did not believe, has God, God's word failed? Failed. And verse six says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are de descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So from the beginning, it was never intended that all of the descendants of Abraham would be the true Israel. And Paul tells how God made sovereign choices to make sure the bloodline would continue. God said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau before either child was ever born. So Paul gives clear examples of God's sovereignty by choosing the patriarchs of the nation. You see, it's important to study the whole counsel of God and not let man's so-called wisdom teach us about God. Always check the scripture. You know, if we just studied the New Testament, think about this. If we just studied just the New Testament, then we would miss the true story of mankind and of the world. So you can't unhitch from the Old Testament. We must know the whole counsel of God. And I say that because a simple turn of the pages here, back to Genesis, or a simple unrolling of a scroll, and anyone could see that from the beginning, all of Abraham's descendants would not be the true Israel. But that's the way man saw it back then. Hey, we are God's chosen people. We are all part of the promise. Now, Scripture doesn't say this except for in the book of Barton, but I'm thinking. That's Old Testament. Yeah, that's real Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking Paul said, he goes, is that what you believe? Well, can you give me chapter and verse, please? Give me the chapter and verse to back up what you are saying. You know, that is always a good rule to live by when it comes to the word of God. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I have a word from God for you, say, hey, just, just give me the chapter and verse, please. That way you will know it was definitely from God. Amen. Paul always gave chapter and verses to back up what he says. He always did that. So, so we see that God has made sovereign choices from the beginning. Now that leads to the next question they have. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God on God's part? By no means. How does Paul answer that? He gives them chapter and verse. He now takes them back to the Exodus. And the way in which Paul shows that there is no injustice in God, he says this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He will have mercy on whomever he chooses. That is, God does what he does without anything outside himself determining his choices. What he does does not depend on human will or exertion which is joyful news, joyful good news when it comes to salvation, right? We like that. None of us can will our salvation into existence. No amount of human effort would ever bring anyone to salvation. We love to hear that God is merciful to us. We rejoice 
that it is all of God when it comes to salvation. And so I just want to stop here and say, usually everybody's pretty good with this section of scripture up to this point. You know, God makes sovereign choices to make sure his promises are fulfilled. We're like, okay, that's good. That's good. You can do that. We want to make sure, you know, God, God is taking control to make sure that the Messiah will come. Everybody's pretty good with that. We say, you know, let God be God. Let God be God. But in verse 17, this is where mankind has a hard time with the scriptures. For when he says, you know, the very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But this is how Paul explained that there is no injustice in God. Remember, we talked about how everyone is guilty, right? We know that everyone is guilty. And God would be just if he poured out his wrath on each person at the very moment they sinned. That would be just. <clears throat> and because everyone is guilty of sin, deserving of wrath, the real miracle is, is that God would allow anyone to take another breath. We all know that's true, right? We know that's true. But that's not what Paul wants us to take away from this text. He doesn't want us to beat ourselves up over and over again going, who's on first, what's on second? You know, trying to figure out, does God harden, which I'll explain later, or did God save, did God open our eyes? You know, it's confusing, but that's not what Paul wants us to take away this, from this text. Paul is not wanting everyone to know that God has the absolute right to show mercy or that he has the absolute right to harden the heart. It is true. He is God. He does have the absolute right. But there's more. Remember what Paul is doing. He's telling the story of Israel here in chapter nine to in chapters nine through eleven. And when he gets to eleven, Paul will be explaining what God is doing with Israel at that present time. So Paul's taking them back, and then he brings them up to the present time in chapter eleven. In other words, Paul is still telling the story of Israel itself to explain what is now happening to Paul's kinsmen in the flesh when he wrote this letter. So with that said, watch this. God's action upon Pharaoh was part of the means not only to rescue Israel from slavery, but what else? What does verse 17 say? For this very purpose, I have raised you up. Why? Why did God do that? Why did he allow him to stand? that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That was the purpose of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, let's jump ahead. Look up to chapter 11, verses 11 through 14 here in Romans. Look what it says. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Speaking of unbelieving Israel, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure mean rich, means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to some, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So let's put these two together here. God's action upon Pharaoh had a purpose. What was that purpose? That God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. 
it worked. People are talking about Pharaoh and the Exodus and God to this day. We're doing it now, right? Believers and non-believers talk about the Exodus and Pharaoh and God's power. It worked. Now, God's action upon Israel back then had a purpose. It is part of the means of bringing the gospel to the nations. You see that? That's what God says. Unbelieving Israel is part of the means of declaring the name of the Lord. Part of the means of declaring the name of Jesus Christ to the nations. God is using the unbelief of Israel in the same way he used Pharaoh's hardened heart. The unbelief of the nation of Israel is actually the means in which salvation has gone to the Gentiles. That's what we just read in chapter 11. And salvation going to the Gentiles should make the Jews jealous. That was God's plan. Even though we cannot fully understand what God is doing and, and why, we cannot deny that it is working, said all the saved Gentiles. Amen. <laughs> it's working. So the unbelief of Israel does not mean that God's word has failed. No, Paul says. It is through their trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous. So you see how Paul is telling the story about Israel in order to explain what has happened to Israel after the coming of the Messiah. You have to, you have to follow Paul to what Paul is saying to the end to understand what Paul has been saying or what he will be saying. You see, that cleared it up, right? I was making sure. I think it was N.T. Wright who says, Going through this part of Romans is like riding a bicycle. If you stand still for more than a moment, forgetting the onward movement, both of the story of Israel and the letter as a whole, you're liable to lose your balance and fall. And I get what he's saying, and I hope you do too. If we understand this section of scripture properly, it will keep us on track to understand the intent of the words that Paul has written. I get that, and yes, I, I agree. If you get too focused on one text, you'll, you'll end up taking that text out of context. You'll lose the whole picture, and, and, and you don't want to do that. You don't ever want to do that. But I do not have a problem with stopping the bike and putting my feet down on solid ground and asking questions and seeking to know the truth of the scriptures, but, but I only do that after we know the, the context after we know the intent of the words. And only then do we put the kickstand down and ask, what is God doing here? Especially when he says, he then has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You just can't pedal right past that statement. You know, that, that statement makes you stop in your tracks. And it's okay, but don't get stuck. So let's look at that statement for a moment. This one causes a lot of people the big old headache. You know, this is where I say that everybody's good till we get right to there. So when it comes to mercy or hardening of the heart, God's will, who's responsible? If God does the saving, then how do I get saved? Or, you know, what does election and free will work? How does that work together? All of this, you know, comes, these questions come through this text. But, but when you and so when you look at it, it can get confusing sometimes. 
So I always say the best thing to do when you're studying God's word is to look at what we do know. Don't if God, look at what we do know. First, Pharaoh, what do we know? Let's talk about Pharaoh's hardened heart for a minute. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, chapter and verses. Exodus 7, 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. The text does not say that Pharaoh could not listen. No, the word says he would not listen. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Exodus 7, 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not, he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God knows the heart of man. He knew Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Verse 19. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. Verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. So at this point, who's doing the hardening? God or Pharaoh? You know, I always think when I when I was doing a study, you remember Burger King? You get that commercial, you, you can have it your way. I think sometimes God says, you know what? You want to have it your way? There you go, have at it. May have happened with Pharaoh. Exodus 9, 7, and Pharaoh sent him. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The heart of man is evil. Pharaoh had seen the mighty works of God, and yet he chose to harden his own heart. Point to be made here, just like you and me, Pharaoh was responsible for his actions. We are held responsible for our actions. But did you see God's patience here? Since God is just, he could have pronounced judgment on Pharaoh at, at any moment, at any time. Pharaoh deserved the judgment of God. But what God did is he allowed Pharaoh to stand, so what? For what? God says, so that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what do we see through the Exodus story that Paul took us back to? That God chooses and works sovereign and works sovereignly, but not arbitrarily. That is, God does what he does without anything outside himself to determining his choices. Yet Pharaoh was responsible for his actions. You know, this, this is where I, what I like to call the tensions of the scripture. You know, did Pharaoh harden his heart? Did God harden his heart? Did God not give him enough light? You know, it's kind of a tension, but it's only tension on this side of life. On the other side, it all makes sense. The mystery of God will be revealed. So, yes. Uh, so on this side, if we're if we're thinking 
you know, the, the way, uh, you know, well, God does what he wants to do. He makes all the choices. Do we just sit back and do nothing and say, hey, I want to do that. God chose me. Do we get prideful and say, God's called me. God saved me. I'm good. There's nothing I should do. Do we have, do we have that mindset that God saves who he, he wants to? So why, why do anything? I'm one of the elect, the word got to me. I'll just sit back and let God be God. I will become one of the chosen frozen, they say. Paul said, by no means, by no means. I would say that Paul understands election and free will better than most. <laughs> That's a funny right there. But, and, and you know, the attitude he had was by no means, by no means. Listen to chapter 11, verse 13 and 14 again in Romans. What did he say? He said, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, what does he do? He understands free will and election. What does he say? He said, I've magnified my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He didn't become the chosen frozen. Paul didn't have a problem with free will and election. He did he did not question the sovereignty of God. I guess he understood that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that bleaches the cloth pans the skin. The same God who shows mercy to the brokenhearted, brokenhearted also hardens the unrepented heart. But whatever God chooses to do is right. He never acts unjustly. So Paul just explains how God worked in the past so that his name would be proclaimed throughout the world. He explains how God is working through the unbelief of Israel so that salvation would come to the Gentiles and make the Jews jealous. You see, Paul had a view of the bigger picture, right? His, his eyes were always on the prize. And that's the way we should live our life too as we're on this earth. You know, don't get caught up in these little things. You know, we may not understand it all, just like the Jews didn't understand it back then. But what we are to do is trust in God and fully trust that he knows what he is doing. By looking back, we know that we know he is on the throne. All right, so let's kick that kickstand up and continue to move forward through our text. Look at verse 19. And we look at verse 19, I'm thinking either Paul really knows his audience or he's being led by the Holy Spirit. Maybe both. All right. But he says, verse 19, you will say to me then, there comes another question, right? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? In other words, if God makes the choices, how can he hold man responsible? Who can go against what God does? If if God simply chooses those whom he will have mercy and those he will harden, why would he punish those whom he has hardened? They are acting in accordance to his will, they would say. You know, this question is okay to ask if you are genuinely seeking to understand God and his ways. But you know what? What I've seen over the years is many people use this verse to excuse their behavior. Use it as a reason not to believe or just simply putting the blame on God for their actions. All are wrong. All of them are wrong. One commentator did make this point. He said, this type of question of God 
is an attempt to bring God down to man's level. And if we think about it, that statement is true because it is impossible for our finite minds to totally understand the infinite God and how he works. So when we ask questions like that, we're trying to bring God down to our level and that will not work. The best we can do, the best that man can do is to study the scriptures to know God. To know God and, and, and know more about him. That's what we are to do. Not trying to bring God down to our level, you see. And we have to go with that. <clears throat> and we have, and, and, and what we are to know about God, everything that we should know about God, because we try to figure out all these things about God. He goes, no, everything you need is right here. Stop ifing me. Everything we need to know about God is in the scriptures. So Paul answers that question. Why does he still find fault? For he could, who can resist his will. Verse 20, here's his answer. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Uh-oh. Here's a reality check that all mankind needs, needs to do often. We, we are to seek to know God, yes, but we cannot question God and his ways. He is absolutely sovereign, and there is no injustice in him. So we should not question or answer back to God. We need to know our place as mankind. We have to know that we are extremely privileged to have any relationship with God at all. Extremely privileged. We are to know our place and make sure that when it comes to God dealing with Israel and all of the world, we don't question him and we don't judge him. We need to make sure we are not, be, not being, uh, not uh, judging God. You know what I'm saying when I, when, I, when I say that? Seek to know and worship God, yes, but do not question and judge God. And we do that when we say that, hey, what God's doing is not right. That's judging God. Or we say, that's not fair. That's judging God. We are not qualified. Prime example of this is Job. We know his story, right? Job? He was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. But we read that God allowed Satan to test Job. He takes his property, his children, he, and attacked his health. Job loses it all. Job's friend, one of the shortest people on the earth, a Shuhite, accused him of sin. Some guy. His wife tells him to curse God and die. One may say, if anyone has a reason to question God, it would have been Job. And so in chapter 7, Job directs his words towards God. He sounds very argumentative, right? And then in chapters 38 and 39, God answers Job. Go read those chapters yourself. See what God's response is to Job. And when God gets done speaking... Listen to Job's, Job's response to God. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. This is Job's response. 
I am guilty as charged. I will say no more. Job should have not should not have tried to find fault with God. Job should not have insisted on his own understanding. Job should not have had have thought God was unjust. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? As sinful human beings, we need to know our place. We need we have to know that we are extremely privileged to have any relationship with God at all. So don't judge. Instead, seek and worship. Amen? Let's pedal the bike some more. We don't want to fall off our bikes. Verse 20. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out? of the same lump, one vessel of honorable use and another of dishonorable use. Now, let's not forget our text is about Israel's unbelief and questioning God. So Paul began with the patriarchs. He showed that God is sovereign. He then brings them to the Exodus and he shows that there's no injustice to God. And now he brings up the potter and the clay, which takes us back to Israel's exile. All right. So when, in, when, when Paul wrote this letter, when a Jewish person read this, he would have known what Paul was talking about. They would have gone right back to Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 18. Matter of fact, the, the potter and the clay are echoes of Jeremiah and Isaiah. But listen to Jeremiah 18. Listen to these words. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house. And there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Listen now. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare the concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I, which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build, build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do, to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So God said, look, I, I'm, shaping, I'm reshaping. I'm going I'm to bring on disaster. I'm going to devise a plan against you. He says, you know, return everyone from his evil way. That's all you have to do, and the plan changes. All they had to do was repent, re return from the evil. Verse 12, listen to this. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according, according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? 
So Jeremiah watches a potter remold a spoiled vessel into another one. And then he hears God speak and he says the same thing will happen to Israel. Israel had become a spoiled vessel. The potter, God, is going to reshape the nation. And God ends up judging Israel severely, severely. What God did with Israel back then is what God was doing with Israel after the Messiah came. He's reshaping them. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about the potter and the clay. Listen, you can go to Isaiah 29, 16. Listen to this. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made shall say of its maker? He did not make me or the, or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. Questioning God. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? And if you continue reading in Isaiah 45, you can see that God decides to bring Gentiles from far away to rescue the remnant of Israel. And get this, the Gentiles joined in with them. He brought them in with them. Sound familiar, church? Does it sound familiar? So what we have with the image of the potter and clay makes the point that Israel has no right to complain to God if he brings in the Gentiles. Can't do that. That's the problem they were having in the church in Rome. Gentiles coming to God through Jesus Christ. Gentiles are being brought into the new covenant. The Jews should not have been surprised nor offended. They should have been jealous. And with the imagery of the potter and the clay, we see that God and Jeremiah has the right to remake nations and peoples in a new way. And God does that with a purpose. What's the purpose? So that the gospel will go out into the nations. So then Paul asks the question, has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump a vessel of honorable use and another one of dishonorable use? You know, people struggle with this text, too. Listen, he's speaking of Israel. He's talking about the ones who are in exile. He is pointing out, you are in exile. I am going to take a remnant out. There are going to be ones who are restored. God made the choice of who would be the remnant. He called out the ones who would be restored. As creator, he has the right. As the potter, he has the right to do with the clay as he will. He took what was a great nation a rebellious nation and reshaped it. And all that is left is a remnant. Keep peddling, verse 22. What if God, what if God, kind of just like an incomplete sentence there. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for, for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So when we read this, we see that there, we read that the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. We have some unknown here. Who prepared it for destruction? Some people are going, well, God did that. No, it doesn't say that. Did they do it to themselves because they would not repent like Pharaoh? 
Did he prepare himself for destruction or did God have something to do with that? Some unknown there. But what we do know, remember, we go with what we do know. We do know this. The vessels of mercy were prepared for glory by God himself. That's a fact. But what we know about the vessels of destruction, we don't know. But if you look at the nation of Israel, we do know this. When it comes to the nation of Israel, you know, which Paul is talking about here, God is dealing with sinful, rebellious, idolatrous people to whom God, after years of pleading, threatening, and an unbelievable amount of patience, could in the end only respond with devastating judgment. They were vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Listen, time after time, if it were not for God choosing a remnant, there would be no Israel. Time after time. So I'm going to stop here today. I'm going to close by talking about the doctrine of election just for a second. When it comes to the doctrine of election, you're going to hear a lot about this. When it comes to the doctrine of election, I always think about Jesus weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus weeping is a big deal. That's a big deal. You see, there are many that teach on election, and they say that the salvation and damnation of individuals is based ultimately on, upon an arbitrary choice made by the Lord. Some are chosen for reprobation and damnation, while others are elected for repentance and salvation. Some declare the perfect will of God is always accomplished and that people receive and reject Christ because Christ foreordained that they would. That's double predestination. I don't agree with that. Because if that was so, why was Jesus weeping? Why was he weeping? First Timothy, listen. Jesus was weeping because he is not willing that any should perish. I'm going to go with what we know, and that's what the scriptures. First Timothy, verse 3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart is that all would be saved. Yes, the saved are the elect of God, but election is based on God's foreknowledge. What and whom God knows determines whom he chooses, it says. The Bible says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Election is defined in Romans 8 as God sovereignly acting in accordance with his omniscience. Remember, we studied that in 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, 
and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he is glorified. The Lord predestined those he foreknew to what? To be like his son. That's the pro this process is called election. It is a mystery to us because we cannot understand what it is. We cannot understand because we are not the all-knowing and all-powerful ruler of the universe. But we do know that the election of his own does not negate the part of human choice playing it plays in determining where a soul will spend eternity. If Jesus was about to do exactly what he wanted to do, I mean, take out Jerusalem, why would he weep? If he had chosen to destroy Jerusalem, why would he weep over it? What tragedy would there be in a sinner's rejection of God's mercy if he could do nothing about it? It wouldn't be a tragedy. Christ wouldn't weep. The choices of men do play a role in his redemption or destruction. What did Jesus say over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing, he says. You were not willing. And he says, behold, your house is forsaken. Jesus was willing, but they, quote, would not. The tragedy over which Jesus is weeping is the tragedy of lost opportunity. The people of the holy city missed the opportunity to be saved because of foolish and wicked decisions they made. Their savior came to their city, but they, quote, would not have him. A willing heart makes the difference between peace and destruction. It was true for Jerusalem and it's true for the individual soul and it was true for Israel. If you will make a decision to turn from sin and self-righteousness in, in, in order to trust in Jesus for your salvation, the Bible says you will be saved. Paul says, for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved whosoever a decision in the heart to trust jesus will secure your salvation we have to go we have to go with what we know not the unknown the vessel of wrath we're not sure if god had a part in that or was it because of they would not repent what we do know is God has prepared the vessels for glory. Know this, throughout scripture, throughout scripture, we see that one is damned because they would not believe. We see that it's their choice. But when it comes to salvation, we see that it's all of Jesus, nothing that man can do. Nothing. So we put our kickstand down on our bike and we rest. But we leave here knowing that God chose the patriarchs of Israel. By doing so, he shows his sovereignty. In the Exodus, God revealed that there is no just injustice in him. And in the exile, there God displayed his glory and a tremendous amount of patience. By reshaping the nation of Israel in order that the bloodline would continue. So that from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God said to Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways 
and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So put your trust in Jesus and trust that God is in control. Amen. That's right.